Everybody, my name is Luke Marshall, and you are listening to Things Observed Times Para Power Mapping. You are listening to both all at once, and I am here, of course, with Clonny Pin Gosh. You can follow him on Twitter at Clonny Pin underscore Gosh, and you can listen to all of his podcasts at Para Power Mapping, and you can follow me on Twitter at Thing Observer. And you can listen to things observed on most podcast platforms. And today you are listening to a show that actually learned how to pronounce the person's name who we're discussing. Eric <laughs> Yan Hanusen. Uh, I believe I, I yeah, said it correctly. We were practicing beforehand. We were putting each other through our steps. And we, uh, we did the work, folks. Um, so Yeah, we're going to be talking about Eric Yan Hanusen. And uh, I'm very excited to discuss this. But before we get into all of that, I'm just going to be a courteous guest. And how are you doing, Mr. Gosh? I'm doing great, Luke. And I'm going to be a courteous guest slash host and uh, just once again ex express how um, excited I am to, to be on the old Zencaster with you and... Uh, yeah, it's it's been a pleasure, and you know, full disclosure, listeners, um, Luke and I just uh, we just spent what like an hour and a half just having a a lovely conversation. I'm doing yeah, it. yeah, we did. It was a good conversation, and we're about to do an even better podcast. So, do you think that there's anything that we need to do before we just go ahead and start diving into some of the questions and subject matter in hand to set it up? Or do you think that we ought to just go ahead and just, just start diving into the meat of things? Yeah, I, I don't think that there are um, any refreshers that we need to give folks, uh, assuming that everyone will have listened to the first part of our collaborative investigation into Eric Yan Hanusen. Um, now that we know the the official Danish pronunciation of this, uh, you know, pseudonymous um, handle for for the Nazi Nostradamus. So 
uh, yeah, I think we can just dig in um, to the meat, as you were saying. And uh, yeah, maybe maybe if there is any further contextualization that comes to us that we need to, you know, take a second and introduce as as we go along. Uh, if if that if that happens, we can uh, do that. But I think we're good to go. Hell yeah, sounds good, because I feel like if we were to try and kind of rehash some of the stuff that we talked about previously, we'd probably just do another hour and a half long episode on this guy, because truly (laughs) there's so much to say about him. So if you need a refresher, go check out the last episode, dear people in the audience. But anyways, so Mr. Gosh, now maybe you could walk us through the time period of Hennison. Hannison's life, starting with his magnum opus to his forming a film company and producing a film with some sus undertones, to say the very least. So it's Mel Gordon who refers to Eric Jan Hannison's, uh, now I'm not going to be able to pronounce this, Das Geden, Geden Kunlesen slash Telepathy as his quote-unquote magnum opus. Um, Something I wonder is whether uh, EGH's limb-hang-esque tendency of disclosing some of the tricks of the trade to build his trustworthiness and credibility is perhaps a practice that's indicative of his possible espionage work. Regardless, what seems apparent is that Hanussen was a non-parel compiler of useful information and public relations savant, and that this limited hangout-esque combination of occasional truthfulness with outright lies and obfuscation is not only evocative of intelligence and propaganda work, but might have made him an attractive prospect as a potential asset. Hanussen formed a film company in 1919 to produce a film called Hypnosis, Hanussen's First Adventure, that would lend itself to his burgeoning infamy. According to Mel Gordon, although it was largely in the Belasco a realistic melodrama style, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari appears to have at least been a thematic touchpoint. Fascinatingly, there are overtones of sexual slavery in the movie, with Hanussen playing a Sherlock Holmes type whose nemesis is a quote-unquote Indian fakir who puts Viennese girls under hypnosis to entrap them in sexual slavery. Interesting to think about this film in relation to Hanussen's later flirtations with straight-up pimping for SA and SS leadership and sexual blackmail practice. It's also interesting to note his decision to use a quote-unquote Indian fakir as the antagonist in the film when juxtaposed with the incident where Hanussen basically trafficked 
a 14-year-old Indian boy who was working as a pool boy on EGH's, EJH's, excuse me, yacht to satiate Count Heldorf's sadistic and pedophilic tendencies. Hannison seemingly contrived a situation where the young boy was falsely accused of ogling one of the young actresses or glorified prostitutes that Hannison brought on such voyages. Kabir's supposed impropriety provided the justification for Heldorf's flogging of him. We're ahead of ourselves, though, as uh, this would happen a decade or so after the production of hypnosis. One other thing to mention is that there are some apparent thematic similarities between Hannison's film and Hans Heinz Avers' uh, fiction. I, I should have thought to look up that pronunciation too, Luke, but I think I did decently. Maybe I actually we'll know someone with that last name, and that's the correct pronunciation. <laughs> Avers? Like that? Yes, yes. Um, it was uh, actually the first girl I ever dated. Um, so oh, very that is the correct pronunciation. <laughs> yeah, here's my personal connection to the story. I'm outing myself. Okay, dive in. Go, please. Uh, no, that's that's all there is to the story. Yeah. But anyways, <laughs> I thought that was the introduction of a, a long saga about um, the aristocratic the, uh, family that she daughter, came from. <laughs> yeah, a descendant of Avers uh, um, hypnotically seducing you or something. But no, no okay. not to right. my knowledge. We'll, we'll anyways, keep, never kiss and tell. So we'll we'll keep those details uh, on on the DL. All right. Um, where was I? So, uh, yeah, so we were mentioning the thematic similarities between uh, Hanussen's film and Hans Heinz Avers' fiction, who is a character that we'll be introducing a little later, a figure that may provide the telling link between Hanussen and Crowley. And if that wasn't sinister enough, this story is going to take yet another sinister turn. So I'm going to just let you go off. But uh, just to set it up, what would follow in Hanusen's life after he left his young wife? And what would he get into after linking up with tobacco tycoon Hans Hauser? Uh, I just thought of one thing that I also wanted to add um, to the to the discussion about Hanusen's film company and uh, more specifically his quote-unquote magnum opus, this memoir and text that uh, Hanusen produced. So just to be explicit, it's like, I think it's one of the primary books that uh, Hanusen published um, that, that he penned. Uh, we'll talk about his publishing career and the various occult, astrological, and other like weeklies that um, he purchased and or started in Berlin in the 1930s, a little later. Um, but this, this book, uh, some of it, portions of it uh, include him like detailing all these different aspects of his mentalist and um, magical, stage magical routines. 
uh, he would divulge like a lot of information about it. And then I've admittedly not read the book, although I've read many books about Hanusen at this point in prepping for this. Uh, I'm not sure if there is an English translation um, of it or not, uh, but I but I think it's also the same text that uh, includes it is like Hanusen's similarly to Crowley's uh, the Confessions of Alistair Crowley uh, and Autohagiography. I think that's the exact title um, or the the subtitle more specifically. Uh, I think Hanusen kind of weaves um, these uh, tell-alls about his mentalism and telepathic routines with this overarching narrative of his life, and that's where we get a lot of this information. Um, but back to the other question about Hans Hauser and uh, the beginning of Hanusen's uh, espionage career that. Um, Luke just uh, segued us into. So in 1921, Eric Yan Hanusen left his young Anshanu wife and daughter to travel around the Eastern Mediterranean. And in a positively Crowleyan fashion, Hanusen also made visits to mystic oases in the distant East and South. That's a quote. Uh, during these travels, we're talking Greece, Turkey, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, French Algeria, and um, even Jerusalem in Palestine at the time. Touring the quote new colonial protectorates and mandates awarded to victorious France, Britain, and Italy. End quote. His travels were triggered by his chance encounter with the Austrio, or excuse me, Austro-Hungarian tobacco tycoon Hans Hauser. And guess where Hanusen met Hauser? Do you know? At the institute, where he practiced hypnotism. His connection with Hauser is what led to Hanusen seemingly getting involved in espionage and arms trading. So the fact that they met in a hypnotic clinic is a perfect encapsulation of the intersections of hypnosis, occultism, stage magic, and espionage. A bevy of seemingly unconnected interests that are curiously prevalent among a handful of espionage and or MK connected folks that we could easily rattle off. Alistair Crowley and William Joseph Bryan immediately come to mind. G.H. Estabrooks, etc. Hilariously, Hauser came to the Institute to seek treatment for some kind of hysterical or psychosomatic choking condition that he was dealing with, and Hanusen was able to remedy it by placing the tycoon under hypnosis. Actually, Luke, I'm, I'm just thinking about it now. I'd have to go back and look for this section in one of the assorted uh, Crowley biographies I've dipped into, but 
I'm pretty sure I read an account where Crowley similarly was tasked with caring for this wealthy British industrialist or um, aristocrat who was dealing with some kind of nervous or mental disorder. And they ended up becoming boon companions and traveling in northern Africa and the Mediterranean for a time. I can't remember if there's mention of Crowley hypnotizing the guy. That would be wild if true, but don't quote me on that. Um, it's probably it's probably unlikely, honestly. I'm also trying to remember right now wh- which book which book I uh, found mention of this story in. I think it might have been uh, Tobias Churton's book about Crowley's time in Paris. Um, I was I was actually trying to find the uh, reference to this story in Spence's uh, Secret Agent 666 um, earlier today, and I didn't, I didn't find it in there, so I, uh, I think it might have been Churton, but I'm not positive. Although I can't remember exactly where I read it, I do know that at least something along those uh, contours occurred in Crowley's life. The anecdote about the beginning of Hauser and Hanusen's or Hanusen's relationship is so insane. So Hauser requested Hanusen's service as he basically couldn't eat without being placed in a hypnotic trance. <laughs> Can you imagine, Luke? Like every day you sit down to eat like a pork chop or something and you have to have uh this like I have yeah. to have Hannison put me uh, into a trance in order to <laughs> accomplish that task. I'm fortunate yeah. enough to not be at the uh at the will of uh any hypnotist when it comes to uh, you know having an appetite and being able to swallow and stuff. So grateful That's for good. that. You heard it here first, folks. Luke is not um dependent upon a uh occulted hypnotist for his um basic motor functions so that's good i only get hypnotized by peoples from the infamous avers family um you know (laughs) into you know dating them and stuff so that's my big reveal for the episode so uh sometime in march 1921 uh after uh hanusen began um began his relationship with Hauser and started uh, hypnotically feeding him. Um, And uh, Hauser's uh, usual level of rich man bravado was restored. He hatched a plan to purchase boxcars of surplus army goods from the Austrian government left over from the war which he could get at cut-rate prices, and then he and Hanusen uh, would travel with them to Greece, where he would use the goods to barter for Greek tobacco. He also hoped that Hanusen's hypnotic abilities might aid in his negotiations with the Greek Secretary of War. (laughs) 
it's just so crazy to think about this guy that literally cannot eat <laughs> without being put in a hypnotic trance, then enlisting uh, this stage hypnotist with the idea of having him trying, uh, employing him uh, in hypnotizing a secretary of war of a relatively smallish European country um, during during these kinds of arms trading economic negotiations. Um, and at the time, Greece was gearing up for conflict with the Turks. So it's important to know that. Evidently, Hannesen and Hauser failed in their gambit to sell the surplus army goods that were falling into disrepair to the Greek army. But this is the point at which it seems highly likely that Hanusin became involved in espionage. Let's go ahead and quote the Spence essay once again to provide the crucial context. Quote, when Viennese authorities cracked down on the exhibition of hypnotism, Hanusin looked for greener pastures. With Austrian tobacco magnate Hans Hauser, Hanusin became part of a scheme to sell surplus military equipment to the Greeks, who at the time were engaged in a bitter war against the nascent Turkish Republic. The affair reeks of international intrigue, though Hanusin's job supposedly was to use his hypnotic power as added leverage in negotiations. Luke, do you want to read this next paragraph just to give my voice a break for a sec? Yeah, absolutely. It may be significant that in the Balkan tobacco trade, Hauser almost certainly dealt with the tobacco company, a British firm which had also happened to provide cover in Europe for SIS agents and ex-employees of the Secret Service. Moreover, the British backed the Greeks while the French, Italians, and Soviets quietly supplied weapons to the Turks. Hanusin recalled that he and a companion were refused landing on the Italian-controlled island of Rhodes on suspicion that they were Greek spies. His subsequent wanderings through the Levant and North Africa added much to his knowledge of Eastern mysticism, but also provided ample opportunity for spying. Yeah, so Hanusin and Hauser ended up vying over an Armenian beauty, and Hanusin turned to his stage magic and hypnotism routine to woo her. He ultimately bested the tobacco tycoon, seemingly, becoming a celebrity in Salonika, uh, not sure if I got that right, in the process, and causing Hauser to decide to pack up and head back to his manor in um, Austria, his tail between his legs. Hanusin then sets about touring various Greek theaters with mixed results. And so after this, Hanusin would link up with another interesting figure, the impresario Philip Neufeld, and how could this relate potentially to the work that he was doing um, regarding British espionage? Yeah. So in Alexandria, Hanusin met this impresario, uh, Philip Neufeld, 
who was a fellow Luftmensch from Galicia. Uh, Neufeld was supposedly able to communicate in 14 languages and had managed to, quote, make himself indispensable to the British colonial authorities. Further contact with British espionage agents could have happened at this point, evoking uh, Casablanca, Maki, which was his nickname, aka Neufeld, ran the canteen at the British Army Officers Club. Maki also owned British Railroad stock, as he was evidently the only shareholder conversant in, quote, Arabic, English, Hebrew, and Yiddish. Evidently, Maki was running into some trouble because of his accounting methods. Uh, and so he seems to have used Hanusin as cover for a quick change of scenery. But we have to point out that, again, there's a good chance that this is consistent with creating cover for espionage work or uh, intelligence gathering of some kind. So if you've read Spence's Secret Agent 666 or other texts about Crowley's life, you might know that he also seemingly would use vaudeville and performances of various kinds as pretext for intelligence work. I can think of two different examples that I've mentioned in different uh, PPM episodes about Crowley and his espionage work uh, of this variety. At one point, Crowley managed an all-woman cabaret that appears to have provided him with cover for getting into Russia. And then there's also another extremely interesting account of Crowley organizing this performative magical ritual. If I remember correctly, I think it was uh, pre-World War I, but I'm not 100% positive. But um, this performance was called the Rites of Eleusis, an allusion to the Greek mystery tradition of the uh, Eleusinian mysteries. And Crowley put it on at London's Caxton Hall. According to Spence, the performance was more of an invocation of the seven planetary deities than it was a recreation of the actual rites of Eleusis. Um, Eleusis? Eleusis. I think you have the pronunciation correct. I'm doing that Midwestern thing of like uh, turning my E's into A's. Anyways, at the first private performance, Crowley drugged the audience with mescaline cocktails. It's a wild account because right around that period, Crowley had been embroiled in a scandal when he published quote-unquote Rosicrucian secrets in the Equinox, and there's also mention of Everard Fielding in like the next paragraph in Spence's book, as well as these two other um, military or intelligence-connected individuals, Rafalovich Rafalovich and Captain Boney Fuller. All three were AA members 
with either military or intel connections, and they became involved in advising Crowley on whether or not to sue this newspaper man named Fenton, who evidently began attacking Crowley in his paper after he attended one of the performances and claimed to have been suddenly and non-consensually kissed on the mouth in the darkened theater by a person in a dress with a mustache. So, uh, <laughs> sounds like the rights of Eleusis were uh, typical Crowley shit. Um, anyways, those are two examples that I can recall of Crowley organizing various performances that were likely connected to Intel. The fact Mescaline was involved in the latter is especially interesting. All right, but back to Hanusen and Maki. So Maki, uh, or Neufeld, organized an ill-fated tour of palaces and venues in places like Damascus and Aleppo for Hanusen and himself, after which the two split for a time and Hanusen toured Jewish Palestine on his lonesome. Hanusen and Maki then met back up in Kos, where Hanusen was venerated as a living god following his quote-unquote midnight seance amid the ruins of the Escalop Temple. In Rhodes, the Italian police refused them entry. Uh, we actually just mentioned this. Um, oh, here it is. So, Hanusen and Maki made it as far as French Algeria and Cairo. It could be worth cross-referencing this period with Crowley's travels. I wonder if they would have crossed paths pre-Berlin. More on that later. In early 1922, Hanusen was supposedly employed as a detective by the British colonial forces and he tracked down a group of uh, hashish smugglers, which led to his purported imprisonment by the traffickers and his eventual escape. Supposedly, he even claimed a reward. Now, this story could obviously be some of that auto-hagiographizing that's so prevalent among these occult spy types, but as we just saw, Spence speculates that Hanusen might have actually been involved in the hashish smuggling himself. Either way, seems fairly likely this is further indication of potential es espionage work during this period. Very interesting. And so, how does this correspond the movements of Hanusen with Crowley's travels during this time period? So, according to Spence's Secret Agent 666, Crowley's former SIS handler, Everard Fielding, was relocated to the Eastern Mediterranean Special Intelligence Bureau in 1916. I'm unsure if he was still there at the time of uh, Hanusen's travels, but it's possible. And this would 
be even more indicative of uh, Crowley and Hanusen at least having met, if not having like some kind of undercover official espionage relationship, possibly a handler and asset type one. Um, because, uh, as we already mentioned, the uh, Tobacco Company Limited um, was uh, a front for the SIS, which was the precursor of MI6. So, um, Everard Fielding, who often had worked with Crowley, uh, may very well have been working in that region at the time. Similarly, this is one of the things that I'm probably most excited to share, and I think there's a chance that it's something that others who have written about the uh, possible connections between Hanusen and Crowley, such as Spence and Lewis, may not have covered yet. Uh, I'm not going to say that they don't know about it. They, they may very well have. Um, yeah, so I, I wouldn't go that far. But there's, but there's a chance that uh, this is something kind of new, I think. And it's definitely speculative, which uh, makes it more likely that it's new. I cross-referenced Mel Gordon's Eric Yan Hanusen and the Confessions of Alistair Crowley, as I had a hunch that Hanusen and Crowley might have even met prior to the early 1930s, when it seems fairly likely that Crowley and Hanusen were both working as British intel assets. Crowley may have even been uh, Hanusen's handler. I guess I just mentioned that. Uh, sorry. We'll dig into a few of the figures that link Crowley and Hanusen in late Weimar Berlin in just a bit. So Crowley gives an account of returning to Egypt in October of 1922. He, as is well known, had spent um, plenty of time in Cairo prior to this. I mean, it's like a crucial component of his whole uh, magical story and uh i believe it was in egypt that the the entity uh iwas uh first communicated with or through crowley's wife right and i'm right there aren't i luke uh yes yes uh rose kelly and dictated the book of the law through her for sure okay cool um and that that would have been pre-1922 right i believe so yes okay that's, that's my memory as well, at least. Crowley returned to Egypt. Um, he had been doing some of his trademark mountaineering and probably intelligence gathering in India, potentially for the SIS um, at that time, uh, as he was more often than not throughout his travels. So Crowley writes of sailing from Bombay to Egypt on a ship literally called the Egypt. He states that he reached um, Aden on the 9th of October, at which point he had to quarantine for a day at Moses's Wells, a requirement at the time for anyone coming from Bombay due to plague. So Crowley arrived at Cairo on the 14th, where he writes of living at, quote, Shepherd's Hotel until Guy Fawkes Day, wallowing in the flesh pots, end quote. <laughs> Typical Crowley. 
he states that he wouldn't even go out to see the pyramids. He does write of composing romantic poetry inspired by his dip into the quote-unquote flesh pots and uh, also of conducting ethnological research in the fish market. Um, those are also his words, which I think might be a double entendre uh, on A.C.'s part, alluding to both his sexual forays and possibly intelligence work. Here's what I mean. From the time I've spent with Spence's Secret Agent 666, Crowley's Confessions, some of Tobias Churton's books on Crowley's travels, etc., it seems like quote-unquote ethnological research was not a uncommon code word for espionage in AC's intel-gathering career. I could be wrong, but that's just my sense. Uh, I feel like I've seen like phrases akin to that or that specific phrase a number of times. Historically, this sort of thing often provides cover or justification for espionage um, throughout at least the past century and a half, and it seems to have uh, during Crowley's various travels. And you mentioned in the notes you sent me that Hanusin would have a spiritual crisis of sorts in Egypt around this time. So is there a way that this might relate to the theory about a possible crowley Hanusin encounter in Egypt in 1922? Yeah. Another thing about uh, this time in Egypt is that Crowley attests that his practical magic dropped off significantly, which is very interesting, as when we compare his account of this period to Hanusin's, it not only appears likely that their paths may have crossed, even if very briefly, with a decent chance that they were in Cairo at the exact same time, which we'll break down in a second, but um, they seem to have both had a spiritual crisis of uh, sorts, and for the both of them during the uh, latter parts of 1922, which is very interesting. Anderson wrote in his memoir about having experienced a kind of crisis of faith in his own extranormal abilities during this time. Crowley writes that during his like weeks or months long stay in Egypt, I'm not entirely certain how long he was there, as I'm not sure he details the exact timeline in Confessions, but anyways, Crowley talks about how his own magical practice was basically non-existent. Um, and Luke and I actually talked about this earlier, but it's got us wondering whether there's a possibility that what with uh, EJH already being linked to British intel earlier in the very same period of travel via the SIS uh, and the Front Tobacco Company Limited, and then potentially Maki and the bar for uh, British Army officers that, as we mentioned, Maki uh, managed or, or ran, basically. Um, we were wondering, could the similarities between Crowley and Hanusin's accounts at this time and this overlap in their itineraries indicate that they even got up to something British intel related together. Is it possible EGH met Crowley and 
did his run-in with the beast lead to Hanusen's apparent crisis of faith? It's not hard to imagine Alistair Crowley fucking with uh, EGH's head in some fashion. Or was it possible that EGH's account of a spiritual crisis during this time and sudden doubt in his hypnotic and magical abilities, which he claims was brought about by an Arab financier or, I think, commodities trader, uh, who supposedly interrogated him um, about his, you know, purported uh, paranormal skills. Um, is it possible that this crisis was actually brought about by his encounter with Crowley and or even Hanusen comparing his, his magical powers to those professed by the British mage? Or another option, could something related to Hanusen's interactions with Crowley and undercover work for British intel have so discomfited him that it caused him to have this breakdown? Those are a few of uh, my wonderments. As for Hanusen's leg of his respective journeying and how it matches up with Crowley's, so uh, as I said earlier, I went back to Gordon Eric Yan Hanusen and read the chapter that details his travels, which uh, pretty much entirely pulls from Hanusen's memoir. And Hanusen embarked from Austria in the spring of 21, as we noted. Uh, Gordon writes that Hauser hatched his plan to trade surplus military goods to the Greeks in March of that year, assuming that it would have taken him some time to set the scheme in motion. I would guess that he and EJH wouldn't have departed for Greece until April at the earliest, but again, I could be wrong here. Um, that said, at two different points, Gordon writes that EJH's travels in 21 and 22 lasted a, quote, year and a half, end quote, and, uh, quote, 17 months, end quote. Gordon also writes that EJH concluded his travels around the Middle East and North Africa back in Egypt. In fact, his crisis uh, occurred in a town north of Cairo called Tanta, and then he apparently met holy men in the Eritrean city of Osmara. Now, I would assume that in order to travel back to Vienna, he would have had to travel north from Eritrea, possibly via train, back through Cairo, and then sailed out of a northern Egyptian port to return to Europe. I haven't had a chance to confirm this, but that would be my guess. So depending on the exact timeline, it seems like there are a couple different points in uh, EJH's travels where he and Crowley could have crossed paths. It's not an ironclad speculation, obviously, but a couple points. One, remember that both Crowley and Hanusen, as intel assets and seemingly veritable 
double or sometimes even triple agents who also happened to be celebrities of varying degrees were stuck in this perpetual balancing act of purposefully divulging hints of their intelligence and military ties to build their personas while also being careful to avoid the highly classified stuff, the sorts of things that could get them in trouble with their handlers or blow their cover. So both of their writings are littered with truths and non-truths, and we can't necessarily take them at their word. My point being that when there are overlaps, and especially when both seem to conform to a kind of black hole in their respective bios, or one that uh, diverges from um, general patterns in their uh, histories, this might be indication that they were up to something. Also, although we're not experts on Crowley or Hanusin to the degree that some of these other writers were, I would guess that Luke would agree with me on this. I think that Crowley and uh, Hanusin probably both engaged in a bit of obfuscation or a lesion of the actual nature of their travels, and may have even altered the timelines of their own accounts uh, or claimed to be somewhere they actually were not to obscure their presence in another area. And I would assume that this is an, an uncommon occurrence in their writings. Um, my point being that it's possible that even if some of the paper trail apparently disproved this theory, that Hanusin and Crowley may have met in Egypt in 22, uh, if such evidence were to be found and it was sourced from Hanusin or Crowley's own accounts of their travels, it might not be reliable. To move beyond the realm of speculation here would be really time-intensive, probably beyond our own resources. Uh, we would have to cross-reference this theory and timeline with any documentation that might exist of Hanusen's return to Vienna and or articles covering his performances upon it. Gordon writes that Hanusen was back in Vienna in the autumn of 1922. In my opinion, this leaves enough time for Hanusen to have met Crowley in Cairo, possibly in mid-October, and then departed for Europe via boat, perhaps sometime in early November. And lastly, even if they didn't meet in person during that time, which may be the case, it seems like there's a good chance that the expat and British military networks that they ran in overlapped, and they probably, I mean, it seems pretty likely to me that they would have known or met some of the same people, might have even received their respective orders via the same British intel contacts. I'm closer to the golden dawn Immersed in Crowley's uniform Of imagery 
I'm living in a silent film Portraying him love's sacred realm of dream reality I'm frightened by the total goal Drawing to the ragged hole And I ain't got the power anymore No, I ain't got the power anymore I'm the twisted name on Garbo's eyes Living proof of Churchill's lies I'm destiny I'm torn between the light and dark Where others see their target Divine symmetry See you. 